Due to the graphic nature of this investigation and trial, listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder and adult language that some listeners may find offensive. We advise caution for listeners under 13. In November of 1978, former city supervisor Dan White broke into San Francisco's City Hall building. He snuck past the metal detectors with a 38 caliber rifle and entered Mayor George Moscone's office to plead for his job back. When Moscone refused, White shot him twice in the head. He then walked across City Hall to Harvey Milk's office. Without so much as a warning, White fatally shot Milk five times. Then he exited the building and immediately turned himself into the police. There was no question that White had carried out the assassinations. He confessed as much, but at his trial, he still pleaded not guilty. The excuse crafted by his lawyers was outlandish. White had a history of engaging in fitness and eating healthily, but had recently slid into a depression marked by soda and junk food. They argued that White's murderous rampage was spurred by the excess sugar he consumed during Twinkie binges. His diet, combined with depression, triggered an autopilot state, driving him to kill Mayor Moscone and Harvey Milk. The jury bought it. Dan White was found not guilty of first-degree murder and convicted of manslaughter instead. His lawyer's strategy became derisively known as the Twinkie defense. Just a few years later, in 1981, 37-year-old Steven Steinberg was arrested in Arizona for the brutal murder of his wife, 34-year-old Alana. With all evidence pointing to Steven as the culprit, his defense team knew they needed their own version of the Twinkie defense here, an idea so crazy it might just set a murderer free. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week, we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. You can find episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Not Guilty for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Last week, we followed the police investigation of the 1981 murder of 34-year-old Alana Steinberg. Scottsdale police were able to arrest her husband, Stephen, for the crime just hours after it was carried out. 
Today, we'll examine Stephen's criminal trial, the bizarre defense strategy his lawyer used, and the ultimate verdict that sent shockwaves through the Arizona legal system. As 37-year-old Steven Steinberg waited for his day in court, he languished inside the Maricopa County Jail. He could have easily afforded the bail, but the prosecution was pushing for a first-degree murder charge which precluded the accused from buying their freedom. And so Steven remained in a cell. He still swore to anyone who would listen that 34-year-old Alana had been killed by jewelry thieves he claimed he dreamed about them. Every night, he saw the disguised men that attacked and killed his wife. And every night, he pulled the murderer's false beard lower and lower, trying to reveal the killer's true face. But he could never get a clear picture. While his parents and friends visited him in jail as much as possible, his late wife's family wanted nothing to do with Stephen. They were convinced he had murdered Alana, not random burglars. Even his own daughters, 12-year-old Tracy and 6-year-old Sean, stayed away. They had no desire to interact with the man they once called Daddy, convinced he'd killed their mother. The evidence against Stephen was compelling. Police had caught him in multiple lies, he had a history of gambling addiction debts, and his fingerprints were found on the murder weapon. Not only did it look like he killed his wife, it appeared that he staged a break-in to cover up his crimes. He needed a seasoned criminal attorney to mount a strong defense in this seemingly open-and-shut case. Stephen eventually hired attorney Robert Hirsch. He specialized in romantic homicide, the murder of one romantic partner by another. Hirsch, white-haired and tall with a presence that demanded attention, was often called the miracle worker by reporters. He had an established track record of securing acquittals in impossible cases. For Hirsch, Stephen's trial fit in perfectly with his skill set and was a welcome challenge. Once Stephen started working with Hirsch, he reached a new conclusion about his recurring dream. He told his parents that he'd finally pulled the beard entirely off the killer's face and was greeted with his own. He had been the killer in the dream all along, but he still maintained his innocence. This dream metaphor was just another facet of Hirsch's defense. Nine months after 34-year-old Alana Steinberg's death, the trial for her murder began. When Deputy Attorney Jeff Hotham walked into the courtroom in February 1982, he wasn't worried about the outcome. It was so clear to him that Stephen was guilty, the case felt like a slam dunk. Hotham simply couldn't imagine any defense team, no matter how expensive, would be able to build a case in Stephen's favor. He stood up from his chair and calmly approached the jury to deliver his opening statements. He said matter-of-factly, 
This case is really quite simple, and at the same time, it is very tragic and ugly. Hotham didn't pull any punches, didn't use any flowery language. He kept his voice even, almost restrained, and laid out the facts for the jury. On the night of May 27, 1981, Steven Steinberg killed his wife, Ilana. He took a knife from the kitchen, laid down next to her sleeping body, and stabbed her 26 times. It was extremely violent, and it was premeditated. Hotham intoned, he opened the Arcadia door so that he wouldn't have to prove that the burglars broke it. He opened a dresser drawer and threw various articles of his wife's clothing on the floor to make it appear that the burglars had ransacked the home. Slowly but surely, you will come to the realization that the defendant is guilty. Several members of the jury nodded along with him as he made his short statement. Hotham didn't need dramatics today. The facts of the case spoke for themselves. Satisfied, he retook his seat. But no one in the courtroom was prepared for what came next. It was defense attorney Robert Hirsch's turn to address the jury. He turned on his flamboyant charm and prepared to drop a bomb. Hirsch had style and the distinct ability to tell a story that engaged anyone listening. As if sucked into the pages of a pulpy crime fiction, the jury leaned forward in their chairs, hanging on his every word. While the jury expected Hirsch to argue that Steven Steinberg was innocent of murder, Hirsch admitted to Steven's culpability in the first few moments of his opening statement. He argued that Steven Steinberg had killed his wife, but the jury would still find him not guilty by way of temporary insanity. From the get-go, he painted the deceased as a demanding, money-hungry, status-obsessed nag who pushed her husband into gambling and eventually murder with her incessant needling. It was Alana who wanted a beautiful home and fancy cars and nice clothes. She demanded Stephen bring home more and more money to provide a lifestyle up to her standards. Hirsch categorized Alana as shrill. She withheld sex and dominated Stephen in every sense of the word. Stephen was just a loving husband trying to get by, trying to meet these insane demands, and eventually, the pressure got to be too much for the poor man. He was pushed to the brink, totally out of control of what he had done, and therefore, he must be found not guilty. As Hirsch spun his tail, Deputy Attorney Jeff Hotham slowly began to realize how underprepared he was. While Hotham presented the facts as they were, Hirsch depicted a marriage so brutal, so painful, that anyone could understand why a man might simply snap one day under the pressure and murder his spouse. Stephen didn't kill his wife out of nowhere. Her obsession with their appearance, the trappings of wealth, and, in turn, her increasing demands on Stephen's ability to make money drove him to do the unthinkable. 
this case wasn't going to be about Steven Steinberg at all. Hirsch intended to put a dead woman on trial for her own murder. What's worse, the jury was eating it up, drawn in by the salacious tale of domestic hell. But Hotham kept his trademark collectedness. There were more members of the Steinberg household than Stephen and Alana. He could move this beyond a game of he said, she said. For his first witness, Hotham called their eldest daughter, 12-year-old Tracy Steinberg. While she was still reeling under the weight of immense trauma, Tracy was poised, self-assured, and spirited even in her grief, traits she'd inherited from her mother, and Tracy believed her father was guilty of murder. She wasn't about to be manipulated into saying anything else. Deputy Attorney Hotham asked her to describe the night of May 27th, the night of her mother's death. She remembered it as fairly typical at first. They ate dinner, watched TV, and she fell asleep working on some homework. But then, in the middle of the night, she woke up to her mother screaming. She yelled, Tracy, Sean, Steve. Tracy ran to her bedroom door and called out to her twice, Mom, Mom, but Ilana never answered. Instead, Stephen yelled back, Shut your door right now. Hotham focused in on the exchange. What happened next? Tracy looked uncomfortable in her chair. Then she told Hotham her dad said a bad word. He said, God damn it, shut your door right now. Stay in your room and shut your door, the goddamn door, right now. So she did. Tracy crawled back into bed and lay there, terrified, until her father came to get her. After a minute, he appeared in the doorway on the phone with 911. It was a disturbing image. The little girl lying in her bed after hearing her mother scream, her father shouting at her. Suddenly, the image of the brow-beaten, retiring husband Robert Hirsch had carefully crafted in his opening was threatened. He needed to do some damage control. To try to gain back some sympathy, Hirsch asked Tracy if she and Sean were close to their father. Tracy coolly responded, I was just as close to my mom, maybe a little closer. But Hirsch persisted. Didn't Stephen usually tuck Tracy in at night and give her a kiss? Again, Tracy denied him. Stephen only did that sometimes, and he hadn't the night her mother died. What about her parents' relationship? Did they fight about money? Tracy conceded that Alana and Stephen had arguments about his job, or rather, his lack thereof. Hirsch tried to capitalize, asking if Alana was really mad about it. Tracy responded, Well, yeah, but he was mad too. Of course, he needs to have a job. After Tracy stepped down from the stand, the jurors couldn't help but look at Stephen in a new light. He now looked angry and out of control, which is exactly what Jeff Hotham wanted. He'd seen the vicious crime scene firsthand. Defense attorney Robert Hirsch knew it was a blow, but not a fatal one. He had an ace up his sleeve. 
his own version of the Twinkie defense. After Hotham presented his case, calling the police officers and medical examiners to hammer out the cold, hard facts of Alana Steinberg's murder, Hirsch readied his gambit, the Macbeth defense. In Act 5 of Shakespeare's Dark Tragedy, Lady Macbeth enters the first scene seemingly asleep. The other characters remark, You see her eyes are open, aye, but their sense is shut. Robert Hirsch planned to argue that while his client did murder his wife, he was not to blame for his actions as he was in an altered state of consciousness. Steven Steinberg had killed his wife while sleepwalking. Coming up, Robert Hirsch digs his heels into the sleepwalking theory, and Deputy Attorney Hotham struggles to keep Alana Steinberg's name out of the mud. Now back to the story. In February of 1982, 37-year-old Steven Steinberg stood trial for the murder of his wife, Alana. Deputy Attorney Jeff Hotham presented his case by the numbers. Steven had means. He'd lied to cover his tracks, and his fingerprints were found on the murder weapon. It was open and shut. Therefore, Stephen's defense attorney, Robert Hirsch, admitted that his client was the killer, but that didn't mean he wasn't also innocent. Hirsch argued that Stephen was sleepwalking when he killed his wife, at the mercy of a psychological break with reality, and he had an expert witness who said so too. Dr. Donald Holmes was a psychiatrist in the local Scottsdale community. He agreed with Hirsch's portrayal of Alana Steinberg as an unbearable shrew and Stephen as the poor, put-upon husband who one day just snapped. Holmes said on the stand, Alana was a lavish spender and was oblivious or utterly uncaring about their financial realities. When he asked for discretion in her spending, she responded with angry, redoubled demands that he make more money. I don't think Steve ever could have earned enough money to make Alana content. Then, one night, he cracked. In Holmes's expert opinion, Stephen was entirely unaware of his actions during the murder that night. He cited other cases of sleepwalkers taking violent actions they were completely unaware of. In 1951, a British man, described by his family as the perfect husband, tried to strangle his wife in the middle of the night and even went as far as striking her over the head with an axe. Thankfully, she survived and even testified in his favor at trial. A similar case occurred in 1978. A woman stabbed her husband 15 times while she was completely asleep. She had a history of disturbed sleep and sometimes got up and peeled potatoes in the middle of the night. On this occasion, she must have brought the peeling knife back to bed with her. While Stephen himself didn't have a history of sleepwalking, his family did. Both his daughters, Tracy and Sean, had exhibited sleepwalking, a fairly common occurrence among children. Stephen also had a great-aunt with a documented history of sleepwalking as a child. Dr. Holmes latched onto these examples, presenting them as clear evidence 
Stephen had sleepwalking in his blood. With the Macbeth defense now on the table, the rest of the accusations against Stephen were easily brushed away by Dr. Holmes. Stephen hadn't staged a robbery. He was awoken out of his sleepwalking by Alana's screams and, still dissociating, hid the knife and pulled out Alana's underwear drawer in a state of denial. He hadn't lied to the 911 operator when he blamed Alana's murder on two mysterious burglars. He made that call while he was transitioning out of sleep and still confused. He hadn't viciously attacked his wife in a fit of rage. He was moving his arm in a compulsive manner and simply happened to stab his wife 26 times. In addition to validating the Macbeth defense, Dr. Holmes parroted the same personal attacks on Alana Steinberg that Robert Hirsch presented in his opening statement. He painted her as a demanding, abusive partner that drove her own husband to murder. Conversely, Dr. Holmes painted Stephen as a saint, a man who loved his parents and their humility, but was stolen away by Alana's expensive lifestyle. He was a loving father and husband who worked back-breaking hours to bring home enough money to satisfy his wife and keep his daughters happy. He was easily manipulated, helpless in the face of his wife's insatiable appetite for the good life. Holmes even went so far as to diagnose Stephen's gambling addiction as a response to his wife's behavior. While on the stand, Dr. Holmes uttered a phrase that stained the rest of the trial and the jury's perception of the players. He called Alana the derogatory term, Jewish American princess. Judaism was still fairly uncommon in the largely Christian Maricopa County, and most of the jurors had never heard the phrase before but it instantly conjured the worst stereotypes even the most sheltered of jurors were familiar with. Invoking the phrase was only a further extension of the accusations already flung at Alana. She was stingy, money-hungry, shrill, brow-beating, and she emotionally dominated her husband. Dr. Holmes even went so far as to criticize Stephen and Alana's daughter, Tracy, relaying that Stephen himself had called her a princess in training, a spoiled brat growing into the type of woman that would one day herself be called a Jewish-American princess. With this one anti-Semitic slur, Dr. Holmes lumped together every negative quality Alana Steinberg supposedly had. It gave the jury a shorthand to instantly bias them against the woman. Deputy Attorney Jeff Hotham was astounded by the audacity of both the Macbeth gambit and the slurring of Alana Steinberg. In his cross-examination of Dr. Holmes, he tried to poke holes in the doctor's credibility wherever he could. He questioned Holmes's characterization of Alana's 26 stab wounds as accidental, but the doctor stuck to his guns. If someone was trying to carry out a murder, why would they stab their victim that many times? Instead, he declared, 
a murderer would pick one good thrust and get it done. In reality, stabbing murders by and large involve multiple wounds, sometimes over a hundred. To kill someone with only one fatal blow, a murderer would need to have a working knowledge of human anatomy. They'd have to know exactly where to aim. But Hotham was unaware of this explanation, and therefore unable to refute Holmes's false statement. He had no choice but to let this misinformation sit in the jurors' minds. Following Dr. Holmes was another expert, Dr. Thomas Jarvis. He was the Maricopa County medical examiner. While many people assumed that all state employees would be on the same side in a murder trial, Jarvis was a contrarian. He liked to remind the state that he was an unbiased employee, simply here to state the facts. He didn't play for any side. Hirsch hoped to take advantage of that. On the night of the murder, Steven Steinberg sustained a single cut to his palm. Originally, he explained it was a self-defense injury from fighting off the phantom burglars. Now that Steven admitted there were no burglars, Hirsch hoped the injury could help him prove the Macbeth theory. He believed the cut on Steven's hand was evidence that he wasn't in his right mind during the attack. He argued that Stephen had grasped the weapon by the blade itself, something only a sleepwalker would do. Hotham tried to push back. Surely if Stephen had grasped the knife by its razor-sharp 10-inch blade while stabbing his wife 26 times, his hand would have been cut to shreds. Stephen's hand had only sustained a single slice. But Dr. Jarvis inexplicably agreed with the defense. Hirsch asked, That laceration on the hand we looked at could be consistent with the person grasping the knife down on the blade and then hitting the body or some object, would it not? Dr. Jarvis responded, That's possible, yes. Again, Hotham tried to save face. Wouldn't he have woken up from the pain? But Jarvis denied him once more, saying, One sleepwalker was dreaming of being assaulted and stabbed himself in the chest four times without waking up. Somnambulists don't feel pain. But Hirsch wasn't content with simply planting this idea in the jurors' minds. He wanted to take it a step further. He used Dr. Jarvis's contrarian nature to further confuse the jury. When Dr. Jarvis described the nature of Alana's wounds, he described four of them as fatal because they pierced major internal organs, and the remaining 22 as superficial. By phrasing it this way, the jury assumed that the superficial injuries were not as severe. But in truth, all it meant was that they didn't reach internal organs. Some of the superficial injuries Alana sustained went all the way to the bone. But by allowing the jury to believe the layman's definition of the term, thinking that most of Alana's wounds were scratches, it was easier to understand that he was sleepwalking during the attack. Stephen had simply flailed his arm about in a dissociative state with no real intention of actually murdering his wife. By the time it was Steven Steinberg's turn in the witness box, 
Hirsch had successfully molded him into a sympathetic figure, a loving, if beleaguered, husband who killed his wife through no fault of his own. When Hirsch questioned him, Stephen cried, hanging his head. An honest reaction, but one that definitely played into the idea that he was just a sweet, pathetic man in a sad situation. On the stand, Stephen never badmouthed Alana, and he didn't have to. Hirsch had taken care of that for him previously. By the time Stephen was before the jury, they had heard from a number of witnesses, expert or otherwise, that Stephen was a good husband and father, henpecked by a shrill, nagging wife who endlessly pressured him into making more and more money. It seemed like the jurors had forgotten all about their first witness, Stephen's daughter, Tracy, the only person on the stand to disagree with Hirsch's portrayal. Even when Deputy Attorney Hotham had the chance to cross-examine Stephen, he still couldn't crack the veneer of the sad, grieving husband. He was stymied by Stephen's claims of sleepwalking. He didn't remember the events that happened. He hallucinated during the event. He was in a fugue. Stephen wept again, bringing jurors to tears. And by the time cross-examination was finished, Hotham had made no progress with shifting the narrative on Stephen's nature. Realizing that the case, which had seemed so open and shut, was now feeling uncertain, Hotham tried to pull a Hail Mary. The state had charged Stephen Steinberg with first-degree murder, murder with premeditation. It was a narrow definition, and Hotham realized it might hinder the jury. Given the jury's misunderstanding of the word superficial, Hotham worried there might be similar confusion over the word premeditated. For a murder to be premeditated, it doesn't mean the killer needed to plan for weeks. It could be just a few moments of planning. In Stephen's case, he walked from one side of the house to the other, found a knife in the kitchen, then went back to the bedroom. That 66-foot walk from the kitchen to the bedroom was all it took to make Alana's death premeditated. But Hotham knew the jury might not realize that. So he asked the judge to introduce a second-degree murder charge, murder without premeditation. It would carry a lesser sentence than first degree, but Hotham knew something was better than nothing. However, the judge rejected his request arguing that no one could misinterpret the meaning of premeditation. Hotham tried to fight back, but the judge refused. For her, it was all or nothing. Either Steven Steinberg had planned to kill his wife, or he hadn't, and it was up to the jury to decide. In the end, the jury was presented with three choices. They could find Steven Steinberg not guilty and allow him to walk free, they could find him not guilty by reason of insanity and recommend mental health treatment, or they could find him guilty of first-degree murder and demand prison time. If jurors believed the Macbeth defense or misunderstood the nature of premeditation, Stephen would never see the inside of a prison. And Hotham could do nothing more but hope his closing arguments would be enough to deliver the justice he deeply believed Alana deserved. But first, he had to wait 
for Hirsch's final words. Having given the performance of a lifetime and confident he had sown enough doubt in the jurors' minds to get the result he wanted, Hirsch was relaxed in his closing statements. He hammered home his thesis. Ilana was money-hungry, and Stephen was a simple, humble, weak man who only wanted to make his wife happy. His gambling wasn't an addiction. It was an attempt to get smiles from Ilana. The dynamic between Alana and Stephen could drive any man to murder. And most of all, he stressed the fact that the state had never provided any motive for the murder. They'd never answered the why. And that, Hirsch argued, was clear evidence that Stephen wasn't in his right mind. He had no motivation because he was in a dissociative state. Knowing that the entire case hung in the balance, these closing arguments needed to be the best Jeff Hotham could muster. At this point, it felt like a stiff breeze could swing this jury one way or the other, and Hotham was set on justice for Alana. He knew that sticking to the facts surrounding the murder wasn't going to hold this jury's attention. Instead, he tore down every one of Hirsch's tactics. He called into question the smear campaign against Alana's character, the accuracy of the psychiatrists used in the case, and the idea that Steven Steinberg had no control over his actions that night. He knew Hirsch was banking on the jury, believing Steven had been clinically insane on the night of the murder, and did what he could to crush that entire notion. He closed by saying, the simple fact that Steven Steinberg killed his wife does not mean that he is insane. The defendant decided that it was time for Alana Steinberg to die. And who turned this loving mother with two children into this bloody body? Steven Steinberg. This was not sleepwalking. This is first-degree murder. The state has proven the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, and it is your duty to find him guilty. Hotham's performance was so powerful, it completely changed the energy in the courtroom. While it had seemed like anyone's game only moments before, with Hotham's final words, it looked like Ilana might actually receive her justice. Now the decision rested with the jury. As the 12 men and women filed out of the jury box and into the deliberation room, Steven Steinberg's eyes followed them sharply. These 12 people had the rest of his life in their hands. They would decide if he was the good man presented by Hirsch or the monster presented by Hotham. As he'd done often throughout the trial, Stephen began to weep and laid his head down on the table. Waiting for a jury's verdict can be excruciating, but what could have easily been a lengthy deliberation period, in the end, it lasted only three hours. On the morning of February 18, 1982, the defense, the prosecution, and crowds of interested locals packed into the courtroom to hear the verdict. 
There's an urban legend among lawyers that a short jury deliberation is a sign of a guilty verdict. Despite himself, Jeff Hotham couldn't help but think of this old adage as he watched the jurors file back into the room. Stephen, having spent yet another night in jail, returned to the courtroom pale and weak. The tension of waiting to learn his fate was taking a physical toll on the man. While Hirsch tried to comfort him, he also felt the massive weight on his shoulders. A hush fell over the courtroom as the jury's foreman, a thin, clean-cut, middle-aged man from Phoenix, passed the verdict to the bailiff. In the silent courtroom, the bailiff's voice rang out, We, the jury, find the defendant not guilty by reason of insanity. The color drained from Stephen's face, and again he put his head down, trying to process the news. Hirsch's tactics had worked. He had won. Steven Steinberg had killed his wife and had been found not guilty. Coming up, the Arizona court system realizes it may have just let a guilty man walk free, and attempts are made to stop it from ever happening again. And now, the conclusion to our story. On February 18, 1982, 37-year-old Steven Steinberg was acquitted of the murder of his wife, Alana. After hearing the Macbeth defense from defense attorney Robert Hirsch, the jury of 12 men and women found Steven not guilty by reason of insanity. Immediately, Stephen broke down in tears. In the audience, his mother, Esther, sobbed with relief. Reporters in the audience crawled over each other, trying to get pictures of the historic event. It was the first time sleepwalking had been used to get away with murder, and news outlets were desperate to break the story. To the shock of some, two of the jurors stood up from the jury box and joined Stephen at his table, they hugged him, cried with him, and one even said, God bless you, Steve. In the chaos, Deputy Attorney Jeff Hotham slipped out the side door unnoticed, too defeated by the verdict to even stay behind and finish his job. While Stephen had been found not guilty, his case technically wasn't over yet. In Arizona, when someone is found not guilty by reason of insanity, it's required that they begin civil commitment procedures. Generally, the prosecution files a petition demanding a mental health evaluation. It's necessary to determine if the defendant is considered to be a danger to himself or others before deciding if he can return home or must be committed to a state hospital for treatment. But no one could find Deputy Attorney Jeff Hotham. He'd left the room immediately after the verdict and hadn't come back. Without the prosecutor present, Hirsch argued that Stephen had already been evaluated by his own psychiatrists. They had determined that, aside from this one dissociative state, Stephen was in perfect mental health. The judge agreed. Stephen Steinberg was free to go. 
After spending the last nine months in jail, many speculated that Stephen would spend his first night home with his family. Indeed, his mother said to reporters questioning Stephen's plans, I'm taking my son home with me tonight. Hirsch also believed Stephen needed to lay low after the miraculous trial. He told his client, you owe something. It's time you learned how to help people now. But Steven Steinberg had no plans of spending a quiet night in or immediately living a life of service. He intended to pick up where he left off, kicking off his return to a high-class lifestyle with a night of celebration. One of Steven's friends had flown in from Chicago for the trial. That night, the two men hit the town, stopping at several bars. While Stephen was out living it up, the locals welcomed him with a chilly atmosphere. The jury may have found him not guilty, but most people in the community now viewed Steven Steinberg as a murderer. One man working at a restaurant Steven stopped in recalled, I don't think he showed any remorse, none at all. He said that the only thing that he regretted was that he had to stay in jail for nine months. For a man who had come so close to a first-degree murder conviction, Stephen didn't seem to understand the gravity of the situation. Somehow, he believed he could step right back into his old life, even after a court of law agreed that he had murdered his wife. As the night went on, Stephen drank heavily, and his antics grew more and more out of control. At one restaurant, he approached a woman he didn't know and grabbed her breasts, laughing about having been in jail for so long. His friend pulled him away, but the damage was done. All of Scottsdale was not just disgusted, but insulted by Stephen's ungracious behavior. Deputy Attorney Jeff Hotham sunk into a depression after the verdict. The blow of losing what he always thought should have been an open and shut case rocked him to his core. Devastated, he eventually requested a transfer from criminal law to the civil side of things, where nothing like the Steinberg case could ever happen to him again. He had difficulty discussing the case with anyone on the outside, simply replying to any questions with, that trial was the worst miscarriage of justice I have ever known. The system failed Alana Steinberg. The system, however, was determined to never let this happen again. In a move that altered the Arizona legal system forever, the state legislature changed the burden of proof whenever an insanity defense is used. Now, a defendant had to prove that they were insane with clear and convincing evidence in essence, this was a complete 180 from where the law had been previously. Never again could someone murder their wife and lean on an insanity defense so easily. The unsettled rumblings that had reached all the way to the upper levels of the Arizona government weren't lost on Steven Steinberg. As the controversy swelled, he tried to put on a brave face in spite of it. One evening, he was called to the front of the Jewish temple in Maricopa County to recite the Birkata Gomel, a traditional Jewish prayer of thanks reserved for those who have been delivered from danger. 
Stephen felt that after spending nine months in jail, only to be acquitted gave him the right to this tradition. But when he stood in front of the congregation, prepared to read the prayer, there was not a friendly face in the crowd. With tears in his eyes, Stephen recited, Blessed are thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who bestows favors on the undeserving for having shown me every goodness. Many members in the congregation felt disbelief that Stephen, who had used a derogatory anti-Semitic slur as part of his murder defense, had the gall to show his face in the temple and give thanks for the outcome of his trial. The community sided with Alana's family, who still couldn't bear to appear in public. Alana and Stephen's daughters, Tracy and Sean, stayed with Alana's parents, and while they continued to grieve their mother, they refused to speak to Stephen ever again. Stephen had been so used to his good standing in the community, it took this level of rejection from his fellow temple-goers, as well as his own daughters, to make him realize that while he was innocent in the eyes of the law, he was a guilty murderer everywhere else in Scottsdale. He knew he needed to leave town before things got worse, or even dangerous, for him. He left his two daughters with Alana's parents and moved out of the state, leaving no forwarding address. It's rumored he absconded to Israel, but no one in Scottsdale actually knows where Steven Steinberg went. Steven Steinberg may have been able to escape the hostile place he once called home, but he left an indelible mark on Maricopa County. Wives looked at their husbands differently. Gambling establishments and restaurateurs wondered what other kinds of evil might be brewing in their employees and clientele. Lawyers left criminal law, too distressed over the lack of justice, and the legal system closed a loophole so as to never let another Steven Steinberg walk free. He became an urban legend, a cautionary tale in the once idyllic community, the perfect example of a failed man turned violent husband, guilty of killing a loving woman who wanted nothing more than to be the perfect wife and mother. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday with a new case to explore. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. For more information on this case, among the many sources we consulted, we found Death of a Jewish American Princess, the true story of a victim on trial by Shirley Frondorf, helpful to our research. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Not Guilty, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Not Guilty on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. 
In the meantime, based on the evidence presented, decide for yourself, was Steven Steinberg a stressed out sleepwalker? Or did he get away with murder? Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Maggie Admire, and Travis Clark. This episode of Not Guilty was written by Kayla Westergaard-Dobson. I'm Vanessa Richardson.